It's time for OWC Radio, Tech Talk with Creatives, conversations with host Serena Catania. This is Serena Catania with OWC Radio. I'm speaking with Roger O'Donnell of The Cure and want to talk to him about his most recent work, Two Ravens, as well. There's a huge story here, a long career, and I'm thanking OWC for sponsoring OWC Radio to allow me to speak with amazing musicians like Roger. Roger's a, he's a keyboard player, a composer, um, best known, obviously, for his work with The Cure, but his solo orchestra work is amazing. And uh, The Two Ravens was performed with a string quartet and cellos. He also likes tech, and that's appropriate because OWC Radio is the marriage between technology and creativity, although I think that Roger and I probably have something very much in common in that we're a little bit old school and we still love vinyl. <laughs> How about you? Hi, Roger. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> so I... Yeah, we. Uh, I think we still love vinyl. Oh, we? my gosh. I love vinyl. I love vinyl. I had hundreds and hundreds of albums that I had collected over the years because I was raised in the military and I could buy albums for $2.60 at the PX when I was growing up. Ah, cool. So, but the, a lot of them That's were cool stolen. Deal. But I tell you, I went to buy uh, Two Ravens and I'm ordering it on vinyl. Oh, cool. It, uh, hopefully it, uh, it should sound good. We had some minor, uh, well, I guess there were major technical issues and the first pressing plant we used, the record company, I think, were trying to cut corners mm. and um, went to a, a cheaper plant. And as soon as I heard the test pressings, I knew it wasn't going to work. Um, and then I got a sample of the packaging and it was just not good quality. And, and the thing with vinyl now, it's not a standard product. It's a premium product. And it really needs to be the best that it can. So I refused uh, to sign those off and we went to another plant in Germany, a very, a very high level plant that used to dealing with, with more orchestral music because there's necessarily a lot more space and air in, um, in that kind of music. Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, you can, I think you can get away with pressing a big loud rock album a bit. Uh, you, you've got more leeway with vinyl, but if it's quiet, it really needs to be good. You know, it just needs to be, it needs to be special. And and it turned out that way. So uh, I'm happy with it now. Oh, that's awesome. I, I, I love vinyl because you can just hear everything. Digital recordings, as much as we all still love them, it's just not the same for me. I I love putting that album on. I love listening to every song on it in succession because... I'm sure there's a reason why you pick that order, right? Yeah, yeah, and also um, gaps. You know, the uh, the the spaces between tracks. Mm -hmm. uh, we all, I always spend hours with my mastering engineer, who's a very close friend of mine, Guy Davy, uh, at Electric Mastering in London, and we spend hours doing the gaps because it's you just need. You know, it needs to feel like it either flows or you need a pause before one song. And before the next song begins, and it, I think it's really important. Of course, you lose all of that with digital. And but my, so many people just listen to single tracks these days. And uh, as 
you 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 mentioned in in the old days when you you put on an album and you went on a journey with the with the artist and you heard the songs that they wanted you to follow the the previous song and and I think I thought about that quite um deeply about this record about what which song should follow which and what song should be on side A and which should be on so, side B so it's nice, and with vinyl, generally you don't get up and skip around because no. <laughs> it's such a pain in the ass. Well, you don't want to scratch so, uh, it either. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you generally got a captive audience for at least one side, anyway. Mm. So, uh, so what do you think had happened with the first one? They just didn't. I think it was just a poor quality uh, plant, and um, I mean, it's a bit of a dark art growing growing a um, a positive from the from the acetate from the cut, and I just don't think they did a very diligent job. Um, so uh, I just sent it back. I mean, and when when you send when you send something back and they say we can't hear anything wrong with this, this is this is our standard, then you know Ooh. that you're not even in a fight and losing battle. You're not even in a battle, are you? Mm. you know, so, the other side of just, I don't think they've surrendered. They've just said, uh, we're not going to fight this. So then you generally, you either accept it or you have to take it somewhere else, which is what we did. And luckily my label um, were, you know, they were okay with that. What's the label on the album? Uh, well, strangely enough, it's kind of a, a bit of a full circle because uh, back in 1979 when The Cure first released a record, um, they were released on Fiction Records, and that's gone on through many different permutations. And uh, but this Two Ravens was released on Fiction. Well, it was on my it was on my own label, but mm-hmm. through a licensing licensing deal with with uh, Fiction Records and Caroline Distribution. So, and they're great people. Um, Jim Chancellor, who is the president of uh, Fiction, Caroline. I've said this before, but he's just a music fan. He's like, you know, from the old days of uh, record company guys, he's not corporate. In fact, he's terrible on the corporate side of things. <laughs> but he's just got so much so much enthusiasm for music <laughs> and, and also loved the record and, you know, was prepared to go with it. And it's not an easy record to market or put out there. But, um, you know, because it's, it's a crossover kind of... Oh, it's... it's you know, it's, it's difficult to pigeonhole anything, but this record, it being kind of, you know, orchestral, and, but then with a kind of a rock element with the vocals, it was a tricky one to market. So, but Jim believed in it, and uh, I have to thank him for that. It's wonderful when you can find people that you can work with that help you release something that's so precious it's precious this this comes from a very deep place and when you have a company that says oh it's good enough uh uh-uh that doesn't work
good for you for sticking up for yourself. Sometimes it's not easy. Yeah. Well, it's not easy to do, especially these days when the music business is changing so much, right? Um, yeah. Well, I'm in a I'm in a lucky place that I come. You know that I've got um, my uh, the place that I come from to make this music is you know my my security and my and my um, place within the cure. So you know I can say no to people because it's not everything to me because I have. I have my work with the, with the band to fall back to. So, and, and when I make a solo album, it's purely out of love and passion for the music that I'm making. It's, you know, so if somebody says, oh, we're not going to do this, I'm like, okay, fine. I'll walk away and leave it until I find somebody that does. I'm not in a place where I have to secure a release, mm-hmm. you know, and I only do it. And I, I'm only interested in working with people that share that passion. So, but of course, I'm lucky, and I'm very, I'm very aware of that. Yeah, you are lucky, but you're also incredibly talented. So a lot of that goes into it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> you'd, be, you'd be lucky and not very good at what you do, and you wouldn't get very far. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, there's a few people like that around. <laughs> yeah, we're not going to name names. Talk to me about Jennifer. Yeah, we're about. <laughs> Talk to me about Jennifer Pogue. She sang on the album, and uh, the music video uh, is just haunting. I was introduced to Jen through my publisher, who also publishes um, her uh, band, Vita and the Wolf. And my publisher is actually a very old friend of mine, Daryl Bermonti, who I worked with in The Cure from for tw- uh, 10 years, 95 to 2000. Yeah, so he put us together, and I completed the record as an instrumental record. And then he suggests, he said, how do you feel about putting a female vocal on... Uh, on some of the tracks and I was like yeah you know I'm I'm open to it and we'll we'll see if it works if it doesn't nothing lost so we sent her one track and then she sent back about a minute and a half of vocals on that and it was on an old train the that um that first song that we released and I was just I just it was just a revelation it was just uh it just really worked in on many levels and in ways that I hadn't expected because my aesthetic is is very European and mm-hmm. British and mm-hmm. you know um, rural, mm-hmm. and then she comes along with this kind of Americana aesthetic, <laughs> um, you know, throwing in references to Days Inns and you know all kinds of uh, <laughs> American references, which we love. And uh, and it but it just worked. It was an inter- really interesting contrast. I mean, if she'd been singing about you know flowers in the field and birds and whatever i I think it would have been a bit twee but this this really worked and it was a really interesting uh combination i didn't really i didn't give her any pointers i just let her do do what she does and and i didn't give her any lyrical ideas Mm. and then she came over to london and we recorded it in london in a week nice it's a it's a it's a wonderful music video. Do you want to talk a little bit about the the making of the music video? The 
the an old train, that one in the mm-hmm. train station, mm-hmm. or yeah. Um, my girlfriend lives in Berlin, and uh, mm-hmm. I was there for my birthday. Mm-hmm. And happy birthday! I said, "I'll come." Yeah, thanks. It was last <laughs> in October. <laughs> and, uh, well, it will. Yeah, it will be again this year. And um, I said, "Let's, you know, let's go on the U-Bahn and see see what we come up with." And uh, that station in particular is very colorful. It was, it's in old East Germany. and uh, Which station was it? I spend a lot of time in Berlin. I'm usually there half of each year, but with this pandemic, I'm stuck in, in you know, the house in uh, San Diego. Yeah. Which, do you remember which station it was? I think it was Alexander. Oh, there you go. Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. The one where the mast is? Mm-hmm. Or am I getting this completely wrong? Uh, yeah. So... Um, so we just went there with a camera on a, with an iPhone. Actually, we shot it all on iPhone on um, you know on a mount, on a, one of those gimbal mounts, mm-hmm. and we just wandered around and uh, shot some video, and it kind of came together. It took a lot of editing. As good, that was um, my next question. Did you work directly with the editor on it? Uh, I did it. I you did, did it the editing yourself. So, uh, yeah, oh. yeah. I shot it and edited it. Oh, uh, it's you know we we talked we we approached um, a video director um, and he came back with some ideas and I was like this doesn't really it's not really working it doesn't really make sense to me and I was like well why don't we just try I mean you know it's just pointing a camera and the editing is is a bit more difficult but I've done it I you know I've done lots of stuff like that so. What did you and I enjoyed doing what it. What did you edit it on? Uh, Final Cut. Oh, awesome! Pro. They came out with I'm a new version mad. yesterday. Did you hear that? There's a brand new version of Final Cut. Oh, is yes, it? as of yesterday, ten point four point nine has a lot of amazing new features, and you're going to like this too because oh, you're probably cool. working remote with other people now. Um, the proxies working with proxies is a lot easier in the new version of Final Cut. So that's going to be kind of fun. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the problem with Final Cut Pro is that um, I, make a, I make videos about once every five years. And it's an intense period where I remember or le- relearn everything. Mm. And then, of course, the minute I stop making <laughs> videos, I forget everything. And then five years later, I'm like, oh, shit. I've got, to, I've got to go for all this again. And how do you do this? And what's that for? And, and it's, you know. Mm. But uh, so hopefully I won't be doing anything for Well, I have a theory about that. I think that because the creative process comes from such a deep and important place inside that you're focusing on that and uh, the technology is mm. a tool for for, you yeah. know, for musicians. And you but you studied art. You you actually attended yeah. art school. So um, why did you yeah. switch from art to music? What happened in your life? Uh, yeah, that's that's a kind of a sorry episode. That um, I was studying graphic design at probably the finest graphic design school in London at the time, the London College of Printing, and it was uh, fiendishly difficult to be accepted and uh, and get in. And I really loved it, but then I started playing in bands, and at the time there was no 
blurring of lines you know i mean now i think uh, one of my friends ian who actually did the artwork for the cover he went on to be a tutor at art school as well as an, uh, an illustrator and he said they were well they would actively encourage students to be in bands and be in, involved in theater and film and whatever but when i was there it was so rigid that we there was no there was no room for us to do anything else and unless we we were a hundred percent committed to the course the, you you kind of dropped off and I started playing in bands and missing tutorials because of rehearsals mm. and then the love of music kind of took over but they've always been equal design and music have always been pretty much equal to me and 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 they run kind of strangely parallel uh, when I talk to my friend Ian you know we're always kind of striving for the same things creatively me and, me and my music and him with his art so it's uh, it's it stayed there with me. I I just regret having left. I think uh, because for the, the following three years, I didn't do anything in music that actually made any difference. <laughs> well, so I could have I could have finished the my degree, but I didn't. I'll bet though, looking back on it, if you studied it for a moment, you would figure out that there were connections there, and there was a reason why all this happened in the sequence that it did, isn't that? Yeah, yeah. It's kind of the way it yeah. the way it happens, right? It's interesting. You yeah. uh, you have a daughter who's an artist. She's a graphic artist, so she must yeah, have inherited that yeah, part of your was, brain. Uh, yeah, we. She didn't grow up with me, and um, she started drawing, and um, I said to her. Uh, you know, I went to art school, don't you? And she said, uh, no, <laughs> she didn't know. She didn't know it at all. And it was, that's, you know, that's one of the very interesting things about having children, about what they inherit and what they, you know, the things that come through, through in, you know, in your DNA. And uh, that was really interesting. And she loves it. So um, she also loves, loves cats. As do I. <laughs> she inherited some good things from there me. You go. <laughs> Luckily, she didn't want to be a musician because that is uh, that's a bit of a killer. I don't know what I would have, what advice I would have given her. You know, it's it's uh, it's funny. I have children as well, and I they grew up on movie sets, and neither one of them went into my business. One's a doctor, one's a lawyer. And you know, you do, right. I don't know what I would have said to them had they said, uh, you know, we want to we want to make movies. I probably would have actually have said go for it, but yeah, it's different. So, yeah. So go back to when you were a little kid, living in London. You were in London, right? Um, yeah. Well, yeah, in East London. Yeah. So your parents were musical too. Talk to me about what your household was like. What was life like for you as a little boy? Uh, <laughs> well, I've got. Two older brothers and an older sister, and there was always a lot going on. There was always really, my my mum uh, came from a big East End family, and my dad's two sisters lived next door. So there was always a lot of people around. And the focal point of the house was probably the piano, which was in the dining room. And um, everybody, as they passed by, would sit down and play something. <laughs> My dad was in a youth orchestra when he was young, and my mum played completely by ear, but she could sit down and play any tune that you, you know, you asked of her. And I would probably, from when I could walk, sat at the piano, and it gradually became more and more a more and more important part of 
my life. Like growing up in the 60s and 70s when rock and pop music was really beginning, it it gave you those kind of opportunities or those kind of horizons Mm -hmm. opened before you. Whereas probably in the 40s and 50s, not so much. But now it was accessible to become a pop musician or a rock musician. And uh, although I remember being at scout camp and one of the boys in the scout said to me, oh, I want to be a pop star. <laughs> and I looked at him as if he was from another planet. <laughs> I just couldn't conceive that what that meant or why anybody would want to do it <laughs> and how you would do it. But then, of course, I started hanging around with bands, like in my teenage years, and going to see bands and then becoming friends with them and uh, realizing, oh, yeah, I can play the piano. I can join in. And uh, the biggest problem was that piano's not that, bit, <laughs> not that easy can't to carry, carry it, around. I can't carry the piano with you. <laughs> so um, I eventually decided that I needed an electric piano. And at the time, there were only about three choices and I said to my dad that I wanted to do this and he said okay well if you get a summer job and earn half the money I'll give you the other half so he encouraged me from the beginning even though I don't think he ever realized what would happen <laughs> so uh and I used to set it up at home and and yeah it was all very encouraging and but I think nobody really understood what it meant it was like beyond our realms of you know uh, beyond our world i think i think life in the 60s 70s 80s was unbelievable it's hard to describe it for people who weren't there it's just it was the heyday of music yeah and and you know the horizons were just you know things were getting bigger faster more colorful you could do you could do amazing things, and it seemed like it was limitless. You're, uh, but you know, coming up, growing up in East London in the seventies, it wasn't exactly Hollywood. It was, you know, it was it was tough, and we didn't have a lot of money. But even so, you didn't worry about that. You know, you there were things like Concord being invented and flown, and mm-hmm. you know, musical instruments, especially for a keyboard player. You know, going back to technology it was an incredible time it was like instruments were being invented uh it seemed like every week there was something coming out and so and i really love technology and you know my my go-to instrument will always be the piano but that what you can do i have a very close relationship with the guys at moog and just talking to the engineers, uh, you know, I'm very good friends with Cyril, who mm-hmm. is the chief engineer, mm-hmm. chief designer. Mm-hmm. And it's just amazing that to have that uh, relationship with those guys and be able to talk to them. You know, half the stuff I can't understand. He says, he says to me, what do I want in a synthesizer? And I say what I want. And he says, well, what about if I gave you this? And he, I'm like, what? You can do that. <laughs> And then, you know, it just blows you away. So, uh, but yeah, that, that era for, uh, and recording and MIDI and computers, you know, the thought that you could play into a computer and then it would play it back out to you. Um, it was just incredible. So uh, it was an era that I'm not sure will ever be seen again, the like of 
Yeah, I'm a little sad about that, actually. When I think of it, <laughs> honestly, I want more of it. I don't want it to be gone. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it feels there, there's, a, there's an aspect of those kinds of memories that tend to be a little bit melancholic. Um, and Yeah, yeah, well, exactly. I mean, going back to talking about Concord and when, that, when the last flight landed, I cried. You know, <sighs> it was like that really underlined the end of that kind of technological development and now we're faced with all kinds of constraints, environmental and, um, you know, and now uh, to do with health and and money and, uh, you know, it's just, I don't know where we go from here, but let's not get too depressed. No, you know what? It's actually, I, I don't often look back, but when I do, it is a little bit melancholy that, that comes in. But then I start to say, I'm so lucky. I have an ashtray in the living room that I've kept all these years. That remember they used to give you these porcelain porcelain presents when you were on the Concord. You'd get these little presents, uh, and and you'd you'd go to New York and you'd fly. I forget I, what was it, two and a half hours or something crazy like that to get to Paris, um, and it was uh, three, three and, and a half. half, and it was quiet. It was so yeah. I don't. It was so yeah. quiet. The plane was just like yeah, was cool. gliding above the clouds. And and so yeah, those are wonderful memories. But there, I do believe that there are other things on the horizon for us, you know. And you've talked about you've done some of your your great work, and that you don't listen to happy music. Why is that? <laughs> I want to know. You have to tell me why do you not? <laughs> uh, well, um, you don't dance in the kitchen. Famous, there's a famous. Oh yeah. Well, yeah I, uh, I can be seen. No, I can't be seen to be done. <laughs> there's, um, there's a famous quote from somebody who only ever said one famous thing, and I can never remember his name, but he, he was a French philosopher, and he said, happiness writes white on the page. Oh, wow. And I think that, uh, yeah, it's great. You. Uh, you can use that whenever you think, whenever you want. <laughs> Thank you. It's beautiful. Actually, <laughs> there's so there's so much richness in there's a great richness in sadness and uh, despair that I don't think there is in in happiness. Um, I can't write happy music. I just you know I'm like okay whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I like you know I'll listen to it, but um, the emotion that comes you know from great dramatic works uh, and when you think about what the composer was going through and you can feel it and, and for me the greatest uh, achievement is for somebody to say to me explain to me what I was doing in a piece of music explain what my mood and sentiments were and if I can if I can convey that simply by me in music mm-hmm. then that's an amazing achievement mm-hmm. it is it is I mean, um, you know, you did last year, what, over 50 shows with The Cure? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How on earth? We've got a lot of, we, we've got a lot of happy songs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So talk to me about your years with The Cure. You've, you've been um, in and out of it. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, when I joined The Cure in 1987, it was a part of... Um, like the, I guess the final step in a in a development that had gone on in my career, and you know I was 
playing in the psychedelic furs, and mm. then I got asked to join the Cure. Mm. I finished uh, American tour with the Furs and flew to Dublin, started rehearsing with the Cure. Th- two weeks later, I was back on stage in Vancouver or somewhere with um, with the Cure. It was a crazy period, you know, talking back about the eighties, that you could, you know, going from one massive band to another, and it was it was a an amazing time back then because the cure was really on that upward um, from the head on the door had been released like two years previously and they'd just finished Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me which is the album I joined to to play, to perform I got a pre-release cassette of Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me and I put it in my, I was living in Toronto at the time I put it in my cassette player and I knew within three seconds that I had to be playing that band because it was such, such fantastic music that I'd never heard the like of before. And then from there, we went on to record, write and record Disintegration, which was like, you know, uh, a huge record, I think, for, for not just for us, but for the music in general. And that was an amazing time. I mean, I look back at that period and I think, yeah, I was... How old was I? 32. Um, in this band, making this incredible album. So, uh, I mean, we thought it was good, but we had no idea. Well, I had no idea. I, I was chatting with Robert recently, and I said, yeah, we, we were just making the next record. We had no idea it was going to be that fantastic. And then, <laughs> of course, he said, I knew it was, I always knew it was good. <laughs> well, this... But I had no idea. I was. I just thought we were just making the next Cure record, but it turns out turned out to be you know a career defining uh, record. And then, then I, I was kind of overcome after that record. It was like I'd spent my entire career trying to achieve that kind of success, mm. and I mean not just monetarily but creatively as well. Mm. And then I was just kind of lost, and that's why I primarily why I left the band then because I just didn't know where else to go you know I was just like okay I'm I'm here where do I go from here you know so I left for what was that five years that time mm. uh, and then when I came back I was ready to come back you know I was like Robert wanted me to come and play on the next record and I, I flew to England and I said I'm back I'm not leaving this I'm not going anywhere <laughs> And we started record. We were recording that record, and that that period was ten years. And then I guess I needed, after that ten year period, I needed to find myself again in a different way. Like but this time, creatively, I needed to express myself as a as a solo artist. And you know, having learned everything that I'd built up over the years, I wanted. I I started a record label and a publishing company, and. You know, I wanted to get into that side of things, and then finally, when I came back in 2011, it just it just sort of felt natural. Natural, um, and we, you know, we talked to each other and we said, look, if we can't get on now at our age, we we never will. And we'd known each other half our lives, so um, I mean, we're 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 like family. So it's and it's very comfortable now. We all know each other so well and perform. The performances last year were uh, absolutely amazing. It started off, last year started off kind of weird with the Rock Hall of Fame, which is, you know, English musicians are pretty self-deprecating <laughs> and 
not 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 prone to slap each other on the back and say, "Wow, that was great." <laughs> um, you know, there's not a lot of whooping goes on backstage after we play the show. So to be awarded some kind of, you know, it was just very weird for us. But that, it was interesting the way it affected us. And then we played Glastonbury in the summer, which is a big, big thing for British bands. It's, you know, it's our biggest festival and it's, it's like a national institution. And we played so well at that show. And it was on BBC TV which is, you know, our, our station. And, and it just, we just, uh, you know, I'd look across the stage and see these guys that I played with 30 years and it just all felt right. And it, and it continues to. Wow. That's nice. It's kind of like being in love, isn't it? I mean, it's, uh, it's like <laughs> when it works, it's really, really good. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> and when it doesn't work, yeah, it's, it's like pretty awful. I'm not sure. <laughs> It's more like being married than being in love. <laughs> Not that the two are mutually exclusive. So, are, do you have plans to move to Berlin? I love Berlin. Um, no, it's not one of my favorites. Oh, it's not. Why? <laughs> it's I, no. Yeah. I just well, I find it so kind of punk. I'm past that. You know, I was doing that hmm. what forty years ago. Um. But it's fun, yeah. yeah. I, I like going there, and um, um, Mimi, my girlfriend, loves it. So. Yeah, I think the thing I like about are. Berlin is I think you can find a corner of Berlin to fit whoever you are, and people don't judge. That's the one thing I do like about it. So, uh, well, mm-hmm. you survived last year, uh, but talk to me about um, <laughs> uh, there's this wonderful work, Love and Other Tragedies. Oh, yeah. um, talk to me about about that. Tristan and Isolde uh, on this big stage with oh, yeah. cellos, and uh, it, it's oh, the, beautiful. the ballet. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, we did. Um, so I released an album in 2015 I think it was fifteen mm-hmm. called "Love and Other Tragedies," mm-hmm. which is based on it, it's three three movements in each uh, suite. Which is there are three classic. Uh, love stories and um, we I did that with a a friend of mine a cellist called Julia Kent who's absolutely an incredible cellist she's wonderful and um, yeah and then I've been toying with the ballet world for about eight years now Um, and we've written uh an entire one-act ballet based on the story of uh, The Picture of Dorian Gray by um, Oscar Wilde. So that's kind of in the background. And in, and I ended up spending quite a lot of time in Moscow, and I have an incredible mentor there called Andres Liepa, who um, is the son of Marius Liepa, who was a, a hugely famous Soviet-era uh, ballet star, and he's and so Andres has really helped me and helped me navigate through that world and taught me so much. We 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 sit for hours and drink tea and just talk about. And I ask him the most naive questions about ballet, <laughs> and he never bats an eyelid and just tells me everything. And then I'll stand on the side of the stage with him, and he'll talk me through everything that's going on on stage and explain what's going on between the dancers. And so an opportunity arose 
me to do a one scene uh, at a gala that he was putting on at the Kremlin Palace in Moscow, and so we we used one of the one of the pieces of music from Love and Love and Other Tragedies, Tristan and Isolde, and we performed it with uh, it was piano and four cellos, and they were students from the uh, Moscow Conservatory. And we performed it with two of the soloists from the um, Bolshoi. And one of the most amazing parts of that little um, story was that we rehearsed in the Bolshoi, in the famous mm. rehearsal rooms. And that was like oh. a dream come true. Yeah. Uh, and I worked, worked with um, a choreographer called Nikita Dmitrievsky, who who is really talented. But the the most interesting thing was we'd be performing the music live, and and in my world, I have room for interpretation. I won't say um, so. Things generally come out a little different every time mm-hmm. I play them. That's wonderful. And um, <laughs> yeah, and so the ballerina uh, Masha Semenyachenko was a little phased by this, but in the end she really loved it because they never get to work on stage with, you know, so closely with live music. And so we, we did a run through of the piece and then we stopped. And then I was playing a part with one of the cellists just to show her something. And Masha just got up and started dancing. And I was just, it was like one of those incredible special moments mm. uh, that I'll never forget. In the, in the famous one of the famous rehearsal studios at, at the Bolshoi, so uh, that was a night to remember. And then we played in played at the um, Kremlin Palace to five thousand people, and luckily the piano was facing away from the audience, <laughs> so I wasn't quite as nervous as I can get in those situations. And I was more I was more concerned with keeping the four chalice uh, on track. And um, of course, there's a single long sustained note in the beginning on one of the cellos and the music fell off her music stand and she stopped to pick it up but luckily I was able to edit it in logic oh my goodness (laughs) I cleaned that up but uh, yeah that was that was an amazing experience see there's the beauty of of having that kind of tech uh, back up to you know uh, pretty much uh, orchestral classical kind of world so that I was able to do that um, and I dropped in a sample of another cello to co- cover that uh, dropout. Mm. That's the beauty of being able to work in both analog and digital together. So you use Logic, and you have yeah. some OWC equipment yeah. too, right? Yeah, I've got some hard drives, which are amazing, uh, that I got in Austin last year when we were playing on tour mm-hmm. there, and a little um, uh, interface, which are just really nice. Yeah, I mean, the most important thing with tech is that it does its job. I don't have to read a manual, mm-hmm, and it does it mm-hmm. seamlessly, quickly, and faultlessly. Mm-hmm. I mean, you cannot have any doubt about a hard drive because that's, your life is on mm-hmm. it. You know, as many backups as you do, there's always one last take that doesn't get backed up, and you need to depend on that equipment. Mm-hmm. And these have been faultless, and I'd recommend them to anyone. They're 
And they're nice, nicely designed, and they're really nice people at OWC. I think I met the Larry uh, president. Yeah, Larry. Larry. Yeah, O'Connor. I think I met him at the NAMM show. Yeah, he really cares at, about uh, what he yeah. does. He really cares about what he does. He is a world class right. uh, engineer. The man has a brilliant mind. Right. Um, and but but he's like many people who are incredibly gifted. He doesn't flaunt it. It's like you know you were surprised when you right. got into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and didn't quite know what to do about that. <laughs> I think Larry must look around and at everything he's accomplished. You know, hundreds of millions of people around the world using his equipment, and you and he you wouldn't know it by yeah. speaking with him. So well, that's good. Yeah. That's that's really good. I'm I'm glad that they're keeping you happy because that's how I met them. I've been using their equipment for years, many many years. Oh, cool. Yeah, there's a piece called the Underworld that looks really difficult, and um, and I <laughs> it's but it's worth it, right? Tell me it's worth it. <laughs> oh boy, uh, we when we played that live, um, so Alyssa. Uh, who's um, the cellist that played the the pizzicato line with me? And I don't know. I wrote that across. I don't. It just goes across all time and bars. And so we played it when we played it live. We were just staring at each other just to try and keep it right. And that was yeah, that was hard play really hard and when we debuted that album we played at um, a famous church in East London St. Leonard's uh, in Shoreditch and I did I, I did too much that day and I was just I, you know I produced the show and I was Ugh. in charge of everything and then half the band turned up and that's always intimidating <laughs> when you know that your band members are watching <laughs> And I, I didn't enjoy it. It was too, it was I was too stressful. I, I, if I ever do that again, I'm, I'll have a producer put everything together. No, you need a producer. But that song nearly killed me. And Alyssa, because her fingers playing, you know, pizzicato cello is pretty heavy duty. Well, and I love that you've said you don't even know what time signature it's on. Is <laughs> <laughs> it just kind of goes across everything? I tried to. You know, that's one of the, the one of the um, confining things in, in music is when you sit down and you play freely and it goes across all time signatures and uh, and then you kind of have to drag it back into some to make it understandable to other musicians and to the listener. And it's kind of like when a writer, when you've got this, massive um, creativity in your head and you then have to funnel it down into something that's understandable. That, that's one of the, the um, I don't know if I'd use the word sad, but um, it's, it's, a, it's a, I find that quite a struggle because I like the freedom of when it's in your head and you, but then there's that rush to get it down onto the page, not the page, but you know, into the computer screen. <laughs> and, um, a lot is lost there, but of course, what's what's gained is that other people can hear it and understand it and play it. So uh, it, it's roughly in four four anyway. That bit roughly, <laughs> roughly. But I I I yeah. listened to it and I thought, I wonder if this is a metaphor for your life in some ways. <laughs> well, the underworld. <laughs> um, I well, 
No, not, not the name, but the music uh, itself and the fact that you you don't know what time signature it is, and it doesn't matter what what mm-hmm. it is. Is the pure, the pure. Yeah, the pure. Yes. Yeah. yeah, it could be. I like the the translation. The Italian translation of uh, the underworld is El, El Regno di Monti, which is the kingdom of the dead. Which is uh, I love that title. That's nice. That reminds me of so, um, the, the Dio de Muertos. You know, there's a lot going on in that world. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, let's hope so, because we're all going to end up there. <laughs> we are. So, how is this? Uh, are you in isolation there? No. No. Um, well, I'm in the middle of nowhere in the countryside, mm-hmm. so life really hasn't changed, okay. apart from the fact that we can't okay. travel anywhere. We were thinking of going to Italy this. In September, to um, uh, um, I'd like to buy a house there. I have lots of friends around Modena and Maranello, and but now it looks like they're going back into lockdown, yeah. and it's just it's just such a struggle. It's, I mean, for the most part, life hasn't really changed here. Mm. Um, we went to London recently, and boy, has life changed there. It is deserted. It's post-apocalyptic. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know when things are going to change. I mean, I'm, I'm lucky I've got things that I do. I fly and I like cars and I have lots of toys here. So I've got things to do, but, uh, it can't go on forever. We need to get back playing again. Absolutely. What's your favorite car? I have to ask. I love cars too. Oh, uh, I'm a big Ferrari fan. Oh, there you go. Nice. (laughs) <laughs> nice. And where do we go to get your new album? Tell people. Um, well, you can listen to it on all the major platforms, Spotify. Uh, I'd recommend Apple Music, mm-hmm. um, all of those streaming services. Mm-hmm. And if you want to buy the vinyl, uh, I think that Amazon have got 90 signed copies, and those are the last 90 that I think are available. Mm. So um, if you want a signed copy, there you go. There you go. Go on Amazon and search for Two Ravens from Roger O'Donnell. Get your vinyl copy. You want to listen to this on vinyl. You're not done yet. You've got a lot of years to go. But what do you think is the one thing you have learned that is going to propel you into your future? What You know, if there's one memory that you tell the family that will live mm. after you, what would it be? Mm. Uh, well, there's, um, there's another saying, and I don't know where it came from, that I try and carry with me, which is don't spend all your life making somebody else's dreams come true. Mm-hmm. Um, make your own dreams come true. There you go. And you've done that. I, I'll leave you with that. That's wonderful. <laughs> well, I hope so. Yeah, there's there's a few things I would really like to put this ballet together mm-hmm. of Dorian Gray, mm-hmm. but, but that's such a huge endeavor. And if, I like to do things that I can control myself, and that's way out of my control frame uh, because there's so many people involved and so much money. Um, but I'd like to think that that could happen. 
Well, but we'll see. maybe you just get a producer to work with you that you can trust. That's that's a yeah. Um, I need. I really need to work. I really need to work with a ballet company. Mm-hmm. It's it's too difficult to do as an independent. Mm-hmm. Um, the music's finished and the the libretto is done. Mm. Uh, we just and you know I know who I'd like to dance, uh, Dorian. Mm. And in fact, he he said he would. <gasps> So, and you uh, can't we'll talk see. about that yet. Darn it, I'm going to have to check back with you in about a year and see where you are with everything. <laughs> Roger, thank you so much yeah. for taking the time to do this. It's It's been wonderful and for being so frank about who you are and sharing your life with us. Yeah, I, I, I think you are, uh, n- not just because of the cure, but because of who you are with everything you've done, an inspiration to a lot of people. And so I do wish that you continue to go on living your own dream. And thank you so much. That was Roger O'Donnell. He is an amazing keyboard player, composer, performer. And everyone, you know what I always tell you, get up off your chairs and go do something absolutely wonderful today, even if it's in your own home. This is Serena Catania with OWC Radio. I'm signing off and I'm saying goodbye to Roger until the next time. Thank you.